satisfy his son for a fish. He's not going to give him a snake, is he, instead of a fish? Or if he asks, if his son asks his father for an egg, will he not give him? He will not give him a scorpion, will he? No. So if you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, and you don't trick them, and you don't give them something different than what they're looking for, how much more is your Holy Spirit? How much more is your heavenly Father going to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? And so, uh, Jason. That verse wasn't really the main part of, of his message, but it was the one that hit me because it's it's right. <laughs> it's so true. The, the Lord, we when we ask for the Holy Spirit, we ask Him to fill us. We ask Him to get us connected to the unseen realm that we're a part of. You know, I'm in love with the Maker, whom I have yet to know, whom I have yet to see. Um, he's not going to give you something fake. He's not going to tease you along. Dan, I'm talking. I mean, I'm, I'm talking myself. He's not going to um, trick you. You're going to get the Holy Spirit when you ask Him. You know, it's going to be. It's a. It's a promise. This is Jesus promising that if you ask for the Holy Spirit, He will give Him to you, and it's not a fake promise. He's not going to give you a scorpion. You're not going to get um, a snake. <laughs> mm -hmm. I just love that verse, I, I, and it's I read it. Lots of times, but uh, that was one of the things that Jason was talking about last night, and it's one of the things that these youth are going for, um, trying to sense the Holy Spirit in their lives, because Jesus called it the better thing. He said, it's better for you that I go, uh, because if I go, you'll get the Holy Spirit. I'm telling you, you're going to be really happy with the Holy Spirit. And so sometimes I think, and what Jason also talked about, just to see what Sunday was uh, a book by Francis Chan called The Forgotten God which talks about the absence of the Holy Spirit in the church. Mm -hmm. You know, how the Holy Spirit is kind of like the unspoken, forgotten God that we don't talk about. We talk about Jesus, we talk about the Father, mm -hmm. but we really don't have a connection with the Holy Spirit, and that's from the point of Francis Chan's book. Um, and uh, so I uh, don't want to do that. <laughs> I want to live in connection with the Holy Spirit, minute by minute, you know, um, hearing his voice, hearing him direct, obeying, don't always do that, but I want to. And so even now, I just want to pause and pray mm -hmm. uh, and ask you, Holy Spirit, would you come and fill this room, would you touch us? This is a place where we have decided to be very vertical, intentionally vertically oriented. Mm -hmm. We are intentionally going after the living God. We love one another, we love each other's relationship, we love the horizontal relationship that we get to have connecting with one another, praying for one another, with Lord. this is a place where we are intentionally vertical. We are intentionally gazing at you. We are intentionally asking this very prayer. Would you send the Holy Spirit? Please send the Holy Spirit to us. Let us be filled with him. Let us be touched by him. Lord, I thank you for that promise. What a promise. What an astounding promise, God. We ask you to be here tonight. In Jesus' name. So anyway, that was that was uh, really cool um, last night. Just seeing uh, youth, lot, lots of lots of women, couple of guys. Um, but anyway, <laughs> there and Daniel. Um, we're still in Babylon. We're in Daniel chapter five. Um, there's notes on the table there. Also, if you if you like some, um, 
But we're going to, uh, and for those who are on Jitsi, I sent some to uh, Giselle. I might not have sent any to you. So sorry, I could do that um, after in the aftermath. Um, but we're still tracking with Daniel, uh, the book of Daniel, which is great because we've got three Daniels in the room here. So we, we've got a couple of Daniels. God is my judge, God is my judge, God is my judge. Um, Daniel, at this point, in, uh, in chapter 5, he's probably in his early 80s. Um, so he's, he's an old man. He, remember, he got taken from his youth, castrated, made to serve um, the king, interprets dreams, becomes prominent in Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. Um, and now it's quite a few years later, and he's probably, like I said, in his 80s. King Nebuchadnezzar is gone. Um, there's been a quick succession of kings since King Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar's son, whose name is Evil Merodach. I don't know why they named him that. Can you imagine a baby coming out of the womb and just deciding, I don't know his name, I'm Evil Merodach. But that's probably what Mrs. Knievel meant. Anyway, um, uh, probably reigned uh, for like two or three years, um, or maybe 18 years. It's interesting that historians differ about how long Evil Merodach uh, lasted. Um, Josephus said he lasted 18, reigned for 18 years. Um, other commentators have seen saying he lasted for two or three years. He's assassinated by his brother-in-law. Um, and so uh, Nebuchadnezzar has sons and daughters, one of whom is a daughter who marries a, a guy named Negoplasser, Neroglisser, excuse me. Um, that's the brother-in-law who assassinates even Merodach. He lasts for four years, he dies. He makes his infant son king. Um, and so that his son, his name is Labashi Marduk. Uh, but that infant son uh, is deposed by a priestly rebellion in the kingdom. And so he's out there after, after a very short time. And a guy named Nabonidus, N-A-B-O-N-I-D-U-S, Nabonidus, uh, who is also a son-in-law, married to uh, Nebuchadnezzar's daughter, rises up and becomes king. So that, that's a quick succession of kings. Um, changes in kingly leadership are much, really dynamic, and Daniel is kind of set aside. We don't hear much from Daniel uh, during this point, and it's likely that he and his, uh, his advice, et cetera, is set to the side, which happens in the administration, happened to us just couple months ago, you know, he's out with the old administrators and with the new administrators. Daniel's kind of put to the side for a little while. Um, and uh, Belshazzar uh, is called king. Now, why is Belshazzar called king? Well, that's because he is Nabonidus's son. And we're going to learn a little bit about Nabonidus uh, just very briefly. Um, the dude loves antiquities. He loves archaeology. And so he, uh, and he, he's, got, he's got that uh, on his side. He loves going out and digging things up. He has, um, he likes to find out the exploits of ancient kings. And so he likes to dig through, and many times they would bury uh, in the cornerstones of buildings some of the records of the kings. So he would like go and, and dig up uh, old buildings and try and find that cornerstone, try and find those antiquities. He's seeking the inscription um, of public buildings, of the documents of the past, and he's got this intense interest in religion. Remember, he's not, in Nebuchadnezzar's line, he's in a, a line that married into Nebuchadnezzar's family. His mom maybe was a priestess in the temple of the moon god, um, and his own daughter becomes a sort of a, you know, the equivalent of a nun in the uh, temple of Ur. Um, and so um, 
part of that made him uh, sort of an anathema to people of, of Babylon because they worship the god of, of uh, Bel, uh, the god of Marduk. Uh, so they're not so interested really in the moon god, but Nabonidus uh, was. And so he ends up living in Arabia. He's got this intense interest in, in uh, antiquities, and his religious practices are not exactly uh, the common ones of the, of the Babylon. And so he makes his son, he's, uh, he's absent so often, he makes his son king. And his son, Belshazzar, who we're going to read about here, not a very, very, not a very good king, but he co-reigns with Nabonidus. So who's king? Nabonidus and Belshazzar. Both of them are king at the same time. Uh, and Nabonidus has a near-term problem. Um, he's being attacked by Cyrus, the uh, great general. He's with the Medes and the Persians. In fact, um, they've been besieging Babylon for maybe as long as two and a half years. So um, they've, they've wiped out the countryside. They've wiped out a lot of Nabonidus' army. And Nabonidus is fighting for his life in the outskirts around Babylon. Um, some, some historians say it was, a, it was a many months siege. Others say it was up to two and a half years. Um, Nabonidus is right now leading a defensive campaign against Cyrus, and he's not doing well. Cyrus's army is really strong. Um, uh, and so, uh, oh, by the way, just one of the cool things that we talked about this early on about, because there are questions about who wrote Daniel, and did Daniel write Daniel, did Daniel write all of Daniel, and was Daniel in, instead written by somebody more like, not in the 500 BC time frame, but more like in the 100 BC time frame, maybe 400 years later, and, and maybe their style differences, et cetera. And, and anyway, how come there's no record of this guy Belshazzar? Um, Belshazzar, yeah. I've been saying Baltazar a lot, so uh, that, that's not right. He's a, he's a Catholic author that we read, and uh, he was not king. Um, <laughs> but uh, um, um, Belshazzar, there's no mention of him. Uh, but they found this in 1980 something, they found this clay tablet. Um, that, that indicates uh, that there is a business deal between two businessmen shaking hands and they do this covenant and they do it in the name of Nabonidus and Belshazzar. They do it both. They were, in other words, very good evidence that they were co-reigning at the same time because you make these business oaths, you make these business agreements where you shake hands in the name of the current king. At that time, at that time they were both of them. So pretty likely that Belshazzar was around during that time. Meanwhile, um, uh, Nabonidus is fighting for his life. He's fighting for the kingdom uh, around the land. And, and the city of Babylon isn't falling, and it's not likely to fall. And so I'm going to read from this guy, Herodotus. Uh, um, he's a uh, historian from, the, from that time. And he's talking about why Babylon, the city of Babylon, is not going to fall. It's situated on a vast plain. Babylon is shaped like a square, measuring 13 and a half miles on each side, with a perimeter about 55 miles. That's how large the urban area of Babylon is, 55 miles uh, around. And it's designed like no other city known to us. First, it has a deep, wide moat full of water that surrounds it. And that's its outer boundary. And then there's this wall that's 300 feet high, 300 feet high, 30 stories high. And it's 76 feet wide. Um, and along the top of the end of the wall, says the historian uh, Herodotus, they built one-story chambers facing each other, leaving a space about the size of a passageway for a four-horse uh, chariot between each. Around the wall, they have 100 gates of all bronze and pillars of lentils. And it has two districts, because the river Euphrates 
goes right through the middle of that lot with big river freights, you know, big as the Nile, uh, a big, honking, very deep, very fast-flowing river goes right through the middle of Babylon, and it's deep and it's swift. Um, and so that's Babylon. So um, that's the setting. Here's the scripture. Um, King Belshazzar gave a great banquet uh, for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets and Nebuchadnezzar, his father, and by the way, there's no word for grandfather in the uh, Aramaic, and so father means, in this case, grandfather has to be taken in context. But Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, might bring from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them, and they drank the wine, more like they chugged the wine, <clears throat> and they praise the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. Um, so, uh, according to the commentaries, it's not unusual for kings to have big uh, parties like this. Uh, Ptolemy uh, hosted like a hundred soldiers from Pompey's army. There was uh, word that Alexander the Great had 10,000 people invited to his wedding feast. Um, and a per this Persian mark is monarch is reported to have daily food for 15,000 in his royal household. Every day, 15,000 people coming to his town. So, so 1,000 people, and really, it's probably more like 1,000 nobles plus their entourage, probably like, you know, in other words, many times 1,000 probably that, that Belshazzar is having his party for. But the bottom line is, while his father's like out fighting uh, Cyrus and his armies, um, his son calls for this decadent party Wives and, and concubines are not normally at these parties. Lots of wine flowing. Um, decadent party coming. They drink to the god, the false gods of, of corruption and sin and excess. He's supposed to be about the business of the king, Belshazzar is, but he gives himself the pleasure and the comfort. Um, uh, they're drinking wine. Um, some commentaries describe it as a drunken orgy. Some, at some point when the wine is flowing, Belshazzar wants to gloat over Babylon's victory over Israel, so he brings out the golden goblets, and they drink out of these sacred things. There's Jewish servants in the room, you know, watching, just grieving, watching the sacred elements being used for this, this purpose, and so it's offensive to them. And then he puts the goblets down, and he praises the gods of wood and silver and stone, these gods that can't hear. Um, so uh, suddenly, verse 5, the fingers of a human hand appear and write on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand of the royal palace. And the king watches the hand as it writes. His face turns pale, and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. You guys have probably heard the phrase of writing is on the wall, you know, meaning the thing, the thing is decided. You ever heard the phrase, you know, my knee, I was so scared my knees were knocking together? It comes from the scripture. Um, the king summoned the enchanters, were seven enchanters, astrologers, diviners, and he said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads the writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck and will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Third highest because Nabonidus, Belshazzar, the best we can do is make him number three. Um, Verse 8, then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So Belshazzar became even more terrified, and his face grew even more pale. 
and his nobles were baffled. So Belshazzar sees a human hand inscribing on the walls a message, and it freaks him out. It terrifies him. Um, and so he promises to Richard the warrior who can interpret it. And I've been asking all week, uh, for the past two weeks, why, God, did you do that? Why a human hand writing? Why, why, why express your judgment that way? God can do whatever he wants. He's, he is, he's got Genesis 1 on his resume, like they both said. But if you've got Genesis 1 on your resume, you can express yourself any way you want. He didn't do that out of random. And I would love your ideas, because I don't know the answer. I don't know why the human hand, as, except for a couple things. One is that um, whatever God did, it was effective. It, it got the message across. You can tell by, re, by looking at what happened to, to Belshazzar. His knees are knocking. He's freaked out. His face becomes pale. Nobody can interpret it. His face becomes even more pale. You know, and so um, uh, the form, the, the the hand, most I come up with is that that expresses there's a personality. In other words. You don't want just the pencil to appear out of nowhere and start writing, or the scribe, or the, you know, the piece of iron that would inscribe into the wall. Uh, that could be a magic trick, or, and it really doesn't tell you that there's a personality coming. Later in Daniel, actually later in this chapter, we're going to find out that God sent the hand. So it's not necessarily God's hand, it's a hand commissioned by God to, to write uh, this. Um, but I, we have this dog at home, and uh, and so she uh, she knows when my hand gets near that there's something great coming because I pet her with it, and I stroke her, and I'm feeding her, etc. But she also is a puppy, and so she's chewing all the time on my hand, and and we try to do what the trainer told us to do, which is you're supposed to go, oh, you know, let, let them know that you're you know you're uh, you're as a peer to this dog, as a, as a fellow dog. You're hurting me, and so stop that, so back off. And it just wasn't working, at least it wasn't working fast enough for me. So, <laughs> so the hand that gently strokes poor Nala gave <laughs> her whack across her nose, because I'm getting tired of getting bit. And so Nala doesn't uh, bite me on the hand anymore. Uh, she, she bites others <laughs> still, <laughs> but for me, she comes up, she opens her mouth, and she goes, oh, yeah, 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 and then she starts licking. And so she opens her mouth, and then the tongue comes out. <laughs> she's, she's like, oh yeah, remember that's right. That's the thing that like working across the middle. Same hand, right? It's the same hand, that, and so I, I worry about that because you know, all the trainers say you don't want to. You should discipline them. Well, you remember when you're told to discipline the newspaper because <laughs> you don't want them to associate discipline with your hand. Well, you know, but it hurt at the time. I ended up trying to find the newspaper. So um, it may be that that's what the Lord is doing here in Deuteronomy chapter 11. Moses writes. Uh, remember today that your children, so Moses is talking to children of Israel who were leaving Egypt, he goes, remember today that it's not your children who saw me deliver you from Egypt, who saw the discipline of the Lord your God, who saw his mighty hand and his outstretched arm. It's you who saw this, who saw his mighty hand and his outstretched arm as he delivered you from the Egyptians, and he saw my discipline on you, the same hand. And so I... Uh, I, I think there's something about the fact that that, um, that hand of, of the Lord is, a, is the same one that issues um, blessing and discipline. 
And so I read this commentary from a guy named Chiswell, and he, he brings up an interesting point. He goes, how come, um, how come Belshazzar, Belshazzar saw the message and interpreted it as a negative message? He doesn't know what it means. We know that, I mean, the, the, the guys can interpret it. But he sees that thing and immediately his knees start knocking together and he gets really frustrated and really uh, terrified. How come? How, how, in other words, he's got the he's got the Medes and the Persians outside his gates. They're on, on the wall. They would sit on the wall and mock them, saying, "You'll never get in here." They have a twenty-year storage of food inside Babylon. They could hold out against a siege for twenty years, and they've got the river Euphrates going right through. So they're plenty of food, plenty of water, and a, and three hundred foot walls. You're not going to penetrate this castle, and so they would mock them from the wall. And so how come Belshazzar sees this message and he doesn't think to himself, this is good news. Whatever that message means, it means we're going to get delivered. He immediately gets scared to death, gets freaked out. Um, in the Garden of Eden, one day, two people are walking around and, and the, they hear the voice of the Lord come from the garden and they get freaked out. How come? How come at that point, when the Lord calls their name, they, they, get, they get so nervous? Um, Herod Antipas hears about Jesus of Nazareth and he's afraid. Uh, why? He ha he's the one who beheaded John the Baptist, Herod Antipas. Um, and he heard about the works of Jesus, of Jesus and he says, this is none other than John the Baptist raised from the dead, which is astounding because Herod Antipas was a Sadducee. He, was related, he wasn't a strict Sadducee, but he was inclined to the philosophies of the Sadducees. Sadducees? Don't believe in the resurrection. So this guy that doesn't believe in the resurrection thinks is freaked out because he hears about Jesus and he thinks, well, I don't believe in the resurrection, but that guy got raised from the dead. That's John the Baptist. Why, why did his own thinking get turned around in such a, such a bizarre way? And how come Elijah, when he's on his knees and he's praying for rain, he sees a tiny little cloud in the distance and he goes, rain's coming. He, he knows that, that that tiny little sign that would be so easily ignored is a sign of the favor of the Lord. The, the difference is in your conscience. The, the difference is in what you've already done up to that point. Belshazzar has gotten all these thousands of people that are drinking, they're in revelry, there's probably sexual stuff going on, and, and, he know, and he's drinking from the elements uh, of, a, of a culture that his history tells him, in other words, the Jewish uh, uh, religion, has influenced the kingdom of Babylon in a very positive way. He knows it, and he's profaning these elements. And so he's got guilt on his mind. Herod Antipas has guilt on his mind. Adam and Eve in the garden have guilt on their mind. Their conscience is just searing them. And so this, this is, again, from the guy at Chiswell, a really great, great point. Um, uh, so meanwhile, this is the third time that uh, the wise men cannot interpret the message they're useless. I mean, they, they keep bringing in, you know, what does this message mean? We don't know. We can't, we can't tell you that. I have no idea. And there's, there's speculation about why we know we've read ahead and uh, we know the message is many, many tickle, new parsing or parsing. And uh, it could have been that it was written uh, in just consonants, likely that it was written in consonants. It could have been written in the Hebrew style, which is right to left. It could have been written in the Hebrew style, right to left, vertically. And so the letters you have to read down vertically, right to left. And so, you know, maybe it was confusing that way. Maybe that's part of the reason why Daniel couldn't interpret it. Um, 
but uh, but all I know is they they have zero clue and they cannot help and, they, and that's why later we'll read when uh, they bring in um, Daniel. But here here's a hard thought uh, that I'll just share with you. That one that bothers me. Um, if God is really who He says He is, and if Jesus really is the way and the truth and the life, and if nobody comes to the Father but through Jesus, and we are little Christs on earth, we're little representatives of this unseen kingdom on earth, um, the uncomfortable implication is that we are the wise men and women of our culture. You know, we're the ones who are expected to read the writing on the law and give an interpretation to a nation who has zero clue what it means to be to encounter an unseen realm. Uh, and and uh, I'm not saying we got to be all spooky and mysterious and, and weird about it, but um, but we have a definite call to intercession, a definite call to being ones who stand in the gap, a definite call to represent that that other world. Um, we're called to be priests. You know, that, that's what First Peter uh, 2.9 says. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. You can declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness. And so I, I mean, I'm calling myself out on, on my emptiness uh, right in, in this moment uh, because I know things are going to heat up. There's a, there's a time coming when things are going to get even more confused than they were, than they were during this past election. They're going to get even more bizarre than they were during Katrina and during 9-11. Um, we zero in on the end times teaching in this room because, uh, and those 150 chapters, because we want to be ones who understand at least a little bit about what the signs are, what the Lord is doing, and have at least a little bit of understanding so we can both know when to intercede and when to back off and when to react and when not to. Um, but. Um, Really, for me, the message is um, take care of what you're hearing from God and, and others um, uh, and stand on solid ground. You know, be, be a voice uh, and not an echo in this, in this realm. And, and for me, one of, the, one of the most useful things we've done is go through that Sermon on the Mount because it's been framing my thinking for, for now the last 12 months where I'm thinking, you know, I can hear a particular teaching, a particular perspective. Uh, perspective. I'm thinking, well, is it, is it consistent with, you know, dying to self, with turning into the sheep, with, with walking the extra mile? Is it consistent with the way that Jesus called us to live? Because, because that's the message of the king. That's the message of the one who's coming back. Um, but the uncomfortable implication is we are the wise men of these days. And I don't want to be somebody that doesn't have anything to say when, when we're brought into that banquet hall. Anyway. Verse 10, the queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed, don't look so pale. There's a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, who is found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. And he did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding and also the ability to interpret dreams and, and to explain riddles and to solve difficult problems, call for Daniel and he will tell you what the writing means. So in comes the queen, right? The queen walks in the room. She wasn't part of the debauchery uh, that uh, her uh, that Belshazzar was hosting. She probably responded with sudden cries. 
she's likely um, his grandma, Belshazzar's grandma, Nebuchadnezzar's wife, um, uh, perhaps. Um, uh, and but and because she comes in, she remembers the astounding way that Daniel interpreted a dream, not just interpreted, but of course relayed. Here's what you, here's what you dream. Here's what it meant. And so she says, "Go seek out the man who has the spirit of the holy gods in him." And again, these days, that's usens. That's yous. Yousens. Yousens have the holy spirit of the holy god in you. Um, Verse 13, so Daniel was brought before the king, and the king says to him, are you Daniel, one of the exiles? Well, my father brought I've heard about you, I'm gonna just skip over. The wise men can't answer me, I'm thinking that you might be able to. Can you tell me what it means? If you do, there's gonna be rewards, and I'll make you the third highest ruler. Daniel goes, you can keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing and tell you what it means very different attitude with Daniel here in terms of his relationship with Belshazzar versus, uh, versus Nebuchadnezzar. Um, you can tell that Daniel doesn't like him very much. <laughs> He's not, none of this old king live forever, none of this made this happen to your enemies and not to you like he said to Nebuchadnezzar. It's, it's oh, you know, keep your gifts for yourself. I'm going to tell you what this means and you're not going to like it. Um, uh, you know, with, with Nebuchadnezzar, you can see this growing respect. And I, I mean, something when I've been reading this this time going around, it's almost like a uh, like an affection between Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar. But not so here. We're going to find out why. Uh, verse eighteen, Your Majesty, the Most High God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the nations and all the peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. Those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne, throne stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people. He was given the mind of an animal. He lived with wild donkeys and ate grass like an ox, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged the most high God as sovereign over all kingdoms of the earth and set over them anyone who wishes. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. They're hard words coming from an 80-year-old man to a king. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You've had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives, and your concubines drank wine from them. You praise the gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which you cannot see or hear or understand, but you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand of that description. Daniel says, King Belshazzar, you brought this on yourself. You did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. You had every advantage. You need only look to your predecessor during those awful seven years. Why in the world would you honor gods of silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone? So Daniel says, this is the inscription that was written. Mene, mene, tekel, person. And here's what these words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. <coughs> numbered. Tekel, you've been weighed in the scales and found wanting. You've been judged in other words and not found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. 
And then Daniel, Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple, with a little chain was placed around his neck. He was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, king of Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at age 62. So that, that's, that's the message. Um, right now, you know, and so that, that very night, Belshazzar fell. And so the question is, um, how did a kingdom with 300 foot high walls, uh, with a 20 year store of food, with an abundant supply of water, uh, that had been resisting invaders for some, some, some say up to a thousand years, unable to penetrate, how did it finally fall to an invader? And there's, there's two theories, and they, they might both be true. One is uh, an insider threat, meaning um, somebody from the inside uh, actually gave access to, the, to uh, uh, Cyrus. Um, that's likely because um, Nebuchadnezzar goes to different uh, kingdoms, different countries, and he's bringing people, including the Jews, I mean, that's where Daniel came from, and he's trying to uh, congregate them into one kingdom, and, and it's just, it's, it's, there's fractures there. As much as you try and harmonize them, as much as you try and get, get them to be unified and worshiping a gold statue like we saw him try to do in chapter four, uh, it's just not gonna work. There's dissension, there's discord, there's somebody that's not gonna like the way Belshazzar is doing it or, or his predecessor, and it may well have been that there was an insider that, that happened on that. And part of the reason why that might be true is because Cyrus, when he uh, attacked, he attacked on a holiday um, Babylonians were celebrating. He knew that there would be revelry and celebration during that particular time. That's part of the reason why that thing was taking place. Um, so insider threat. At the lab, when we talk a lot about security issues, uh, we talk mostly about outsider threat because insider threat is so impossible, or not impossible, but very hard to uh, discern. Meaning somebody who wants to actually attack you from the inside or steal something from the inside who wants to actually go through the process of getting a high security clearance and then actually steal secrets, very hard to detect, very hard to uh, discern, um, and that's why you want to be very careful who you hire, who you give a security clearance in the first place. So inside of threats, one possibility. Um, uh, Herodotus, uh, who's, uh, again, the, uh, that ancient historian, visited Babylon, Babylon seven years later, and he said, here's how they did it. They diverted the, the entire Euphrates River. They built channels way upstream along the river, and they actually sent the river, the water to the, to the fields um, way upstream, and so the river gets lower and lower and lower, until finally, and they do this patiently, and finally, they divert it to the point where it gets below the gate that was over the river that, that blocked access in. And they simply walked through. They basically turned off the Euphrates River. Um, I think that's also quite likely. Um, because um, uh, they didn't notice it. They were so in their drunken revelry, they didn't notice it was happening. And, and, they, and uh, what Herodotus said was, um, that they uh, marched in and took the kingdom without throwing a spear and without losing an arrow. Mm -hmm. Cyrus did. He, he won that kingdom over without a battle. Um, and so it could have been both of those. Um, so that's, that's chapter five. Um, this is the story uh, in chapter five about, about how Daniel 2.21 plays out in the reality of the king. Um, 
Then two twenty one says, Now the Lord will show him that he is the one who sets up kings and and deposes them. And he's the one who does what he pleases with the people on the earth, even as Nebuchadnezzar uh, experienced. Um, this there's three three major points here. One is that this is the this is a historical event, it actually happened uh, in Babylon, but it also speaks to a coming uh, event, a, a, a future tense event that we read about in Revelation. Um, the historical event, the sudden defeat, sudden defeat, I mean it was like in an instant, the writings on the wall that night, Belshazzar is dead, and the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. Um, just as Belshazzar in the height of luxury and feeding that falls in one hour, even so the harlot Babylon, Babylon talked about in Revelation, at the height of her luxury and ease, she's going to fall suddenly in Revelation 18. It says, uh, Revelation 18, 17, it says, in one hour, such great riches come to nothing. They threw dust in there and they cry out, saying, alas, alas, the great city, in one hour, Babylon is made desolate. Very similar parallels to what happened in ancient Babylon versus what we can expect in coming Babylon. Um, second, I would say, kind of, you know, uh, not not minor point, but but you know, important to pay attention to is um, to pay attention to how Daniel responds to the king. He doesn't really sugarcoat the message. You know, he doesn't make it um, less than it is. Uh, he's not distracted by the rewards. Um, uh, he see he. He's willing to speak to, he's brought in by the queen and he speaks to that national leader even though he doesn't, doesn't like him, he just tells him the truth. And the same with us, we, we keep talking about, mostly because I, it, it's impressive to me that Jesus, when he's talking about the end time, says, listen, you are gonna be brought before kings, you're gonna be brought before governors, Luke 21, verse 12, and I'm all on account of my name. Because you are associating yourself with me, you're going to be brought before kings and governors because of me. Don't worry about what you're going to say. Don't practice beforehand. Don't, don't actually rehearse your message. It's going to be given to you. Um, it actually says, verse 14, make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you're going to defend yourselves. So I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries can resist or contradict. And so Daniel here is giving us a message about how, look, you're going with courage, you go in with, with a straight backbone, and you simply lay out the message, you open your mouth, and you expect the Lord to fill it. Um, the big lesson for me, anyway, when I, when I read through this, is that um, Daniel, I mean, uh, Belshazzar lost his life, and he lost his kingdom because he was distracted by the party, the food, the wine, the women, and he didn't notice the river being diverted around his kingdom. He didn't pay attention to his traitors in his midst. And for me, um, and for each of you, you manage a kingdom. You've, you've got this kingdom that you're control of. It's a place where you get to make your will known. You get to decide, I'm going to wake up at 5 o'clock tomorrow morning. You can actually wake up at 5 o'clock tomorrow morning. Actually, tomorrow will be an hour later. <laughs> <laughs> and you can decide that, too. Uh, um, that's what it means when Jesus says the kingdom of God is within you. You've got a little kingdom that you manage. I've got a little kingdom that I, that I manage. Um, and that's what Jesus was talking about um, uh, in his message on the vine and, and the branches in John 15. He goes, you're already clean because I've spoken my word to you. You're already clean because of that. Abide in me. You're a branch. I, 
I am the I am the vine. Abide in me, as a branch cannot bear fruit uh, of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. Verse five of John fifteen. I'm the vine. You are the branches. If you abide in me and I in you, you bear much fruit. Because apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away as a branch and dry. Rise up and they gather them, they cast them in the fire and they burn. But if you abide in me, and if my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified in this, that you bear much fruit. So for me, uh, asking, what does it mean to have my river diverted? It, it means for me, cutting off from the flow, being a branch of cutting off, not abiding, not, not feeling the Lord's presence in me. It, it is. That's that's why you know so many people make no big deal about grieving the Holy Spirit. That's what we're talking about at the very beginning here. That's the abiding. That's that's a sense of the Lord flowing through us. Uh, it is the problem in today's church. It is the problem among, among modern day Christians, where we, we simply are, are very much uh, tied into the world's mechanisms and not so much tied in into the way the Holy Spirit works. And sometimes the, the river gets diverted from just simple neglect. Um, the worries and the cares of this life, they rise up, they choke up the life out of us, you know, just exactly like the Lord talked about in the parable of the sower. Sometimes it's because we think the world and its pleasures and its, its offerings are like better, um, than, and maybe we're missing out, and so we kind of dabble in this and dabble in that. Uh, but if you're a child of God, if you belong to Jesus, and you're losing your focus, and you get distracted by choosing the world of your kingdom, it diverts your river and makes you long. That's, that's the thing. It's like cutting the branch off. It's like making that branch as you're, as you're connected. Um, so, I mean, really the message here is cherish the river in your life. I mean, nurture it and don't take it for granted. Um, it's easy to take for granted and don't, and don't do that. Don't lose focus to discover that your river is diverting. The good news is you can unblock the river. You can actually redirect the course. You can have you can have the diversions and the impediments and the sources of grief removed. Um, how you do that? You just turn to God. You repent. You ask forgiveness. You press delete on the on the path back. And you come to the Lord, and He washes you clean with a fresh start. That that's how it works. That's why that delete was so handy. So. Um, Let's pray. And then maybe we can pray a little to just enter into the Lord's presence. We started talking about the fact that the Lord gives the Holy Spirit to those who ask. Holy Spirit, I just ask you even now to just let your presence come. Let your presence be here among us. Let us sense you, Lord.